Well, my name is Troy. I'm one of the pastors here at New Life, and this is the third uh, gathering that we've had of our second week of talking about the story. The story is is this book. If you don't have this book with you, um, you need to bring it with you every time you come to church. This is your textbook for the next 30 weeks that we're going to be gathering together. If you don't have one at home and you're watching online, you can, you can get it on Amazon. You can stop by one of our campuses and pick one up. We're selling them for $10, but if you don't have the money, we'll give it to you. And over the next 30 weeks, we'd ask that you contribute $10. How's that sound? We just want to make sure that uh, you get one of these in your hands and And so bring it with you every time that you come to church. Everybody say yes. This is not a replacement of the Bible. This is a supplement, a resource that will help you. Uh, It has the word in it. Um, It's not the entire Bible, but it doesn't alter the Bible. It's written in a novel format. So there's no chapters or verse numbers that are in there. It just flows. Everywhere you see lettering in regular print, that's directly from the New International Version of the Bible. Everywhere you see it in italicized print, That's the authors, Randy Frazee and Max Lucado, connecting the story together. The beautiful thing about this is it's written in chronological order. So later on, when we begin, especially in the New Testament, we begin reading through, and you're like, well, how come that's in the wrong order? It's because it's in chronological order, in time order, in how it was actually written. And it's going to be kind of an exciting journey for all of us. Your assignment is simple. Read one chapter every week before you get to church. Read one chapter every week before you get to church. For this week, you were supposed to read chapter two. If you didn't do that, you're going to go, I think my job is to get you so inspired and so pumped that you're going to want to read the chapters before you come to church. So read it. Uh, I used to be a school teacher. Just getting kids to bring their book to class was a difficult thing to do, let alone read it. Let's be, let's be better than eighth graders. Somebody say yes. Well, can we do that, right? All right, so we're going to read, read one chapter before you come to class. Or come to, come to, before you come to church every week. And then uh, secondly, come to church. Hey, you can check that box today, baby. You're here. I'm glad. I'm proud of you. So you're being faithful to God's house every week. And the third thing is go to group. Uh, we have a group that meets at this campus at six o'clock every Monday for one hour. And we encourage you to come, uh, bring your children. If you want to come a little early, bring a little dinner and you can eat at one of the tables just so you can have a dinner around a table together. And then six to seven is our, is our story group. Some Somebody said story group. They came, I don't know, then maybe they came expecting carpet squares and somebody reading a picture book. I'm not sure that's not what a story group is all about. It's about the group studying the story. And so the chapter that you read for the previous week that I just get done preaching about on Sunday, on Monday, you're going to unpack it on a deeper on a deeper level. Man, this is a powerful way of studying God's word together. Anybody ever gone to a garage sale and uh, somebody had the, this out on the table? It's like a, it's a jigsaw puzzle in a plastic bag, and you thought to yourself, well, that's ridiculous, right? That's kind of nuts. Number one, I don't know what picture it is, right? It's like in a bag. Number two, is it all there, right? And, but people still buy stuff like this, right? They pick it up, and they, they a jigsaw, my mom, my mom uh, used to, we had, she had three boys, I'm the middle boy in, in three and a half years that were born, and so apparently she needed something to do that was, uh, brought sanity into her life, so the corner of the living room was designated a card table, on the card table was jigsaw puzzles, and, and we weren't allowed to go near, the, if we touched the jigsaw puzzle table, we were going to die, and uh, so you stayed away from the jigsaw, apparently that was therapeutic to her because we must have driven her crazy, I'm not sure, but, but she used to love to put jigsaw puzzles together. I, uh, I'm not a fan. I like the eight-piece puzzles for the preschoolers, you know what I'm talking about, yes? Uh, but when you put a puzzle together, how do you do it? You find the edge pieces first, don't you? And then you work from the outside in. That's what we do when we do jigsaw puzzles. But it's very, very difficult um, to put it together if you don't have the picture of what it's supposed to. Now, it's possible I mean, in either way, if you have the picture, don't have the picture, you take a piece out, and you examine the piece, and you look at the colors, and you look at the shapes, and you try to put it in your memory bank, and you set it aside, and you do that for all 1,000 pieces that happen to be in this puzzle, which is why it takes so incredibly long. But what you really need to be able to put the puzzle together is you need, you need the box, because the box has the picture of what this is supposed to look like when it's done. Hmm. Where am I going with this? Well, to me, it's, it's pretty simple. Unless you have the big picture, you can't make sense of the individual pieces. 
That's what we're doing in this, in this journey together through the story. I told you the story is not a replacement of the Bible. It is a resource for the Bible. And I'd like for you to read this book, the scriptures of the Word of God, the story of the, God, of the Word of God. And as you go through it, know that this is going to give us the big picture. We can understand as it's woven together in chronological order, written in a format that we can comprehend and we can understand, then we unpack it together. This is pretty powerful. It gives us a big picture because in, in this book, there are 66 books um, uh, combined together in the Old Testament and the New Testament. There are 1,089 chapters and some 775,000 words in this book. This is a very complex book. It is a, is a very powerful book that it happens to be alive. But what we're trying to do is we're trying to make sense of this book. And this is the resource that will help us make sense of that book as we read through this in this 31-week 31 31-week 31 journey that we're going through together. And so we're just going to get the big picture. We're going to understand what God's word is really all about. And so every week you need to read a chapter. And so today you should have read chapter number two. If you didn't, no condemnation, but read chapter number two for next week and then read chapter number three as well. It's really not that much reading. And I'm not gonna ask you to raise your hand, but I hope that you are staying up with this and not falling behind. Last week, we discovered Adam and Eve. And the problem with Adam and Eve is they sinned. And as soon as they sinned, we discovered that God sent, set into motion a plan to set the world free from the effects of our sin. See, last week we talked about God has one vision, and he still has that one vision. And that one vision, that one mission of God is to be with us. He wants to be with you. He wants to be with me. But Adam and Eve, they chose a different vision. Instead of staying on God's path and being with God, they chose their own path, and sinful nature entered the human race. And then what we discovered after that is God since then has been passionately pursuing you and me at great cost, at great cost to him. Hmm. He's trying to get us back. And the way that God chose to try to get us back is by building a nation. And through that nation, the nation of Israel, but through that nation would come one day God's son. And God's son would pay the price, Jesus would pay the price for all of our sins, and God would finally get us back. So in chapter two, we're introduced to a lot of different, oh, hit the pause button. David, my son-in-law, happy birthday. I want to say happy birthday, David. Yes, right on. How's it feel to be 35? Pretty good, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, okay. All right, so we'll get back right on. So, so, so in the chapter two, we were introduced to a whole lot of characters. One of the characters is Abraham, and then there's Isaac. There was Jacob, and we met Rebecca, and we met Rachel, and we met Lot. There's a lot of different characters in chapter two. Now, I can't possibly teach you the entire chapter two in the two and a half hour message that I have prepared for you today. I'm just kidding. Relax. It's only 30 minutes, so we'll get through this thing together, but I can't possibly do that, so I'm going to pick out something each week from the chapter that you read that will help us maybe go a little bit deeper into the story, and so I want to talk today about one of the main characters in the Bible, and his name is Abraham. Abraham's story takes up about 13 chapters of the book of Genesis, but did you know that Abraham is referred to about 75 times in the New Testament? That means fast forward about 4,000 years and he's still being talked about. Um, so this guy made an impact, was an influencer. And so we're gonna take a look at him in order to understand the big picture of God's word. Abraham was originally known as Abram before God changed his name to Abraham. And he was married to Sarah. Sarah's name before God changed it to Sarah was Sarai. And so Abraham and Sarah uh, were the ones that God formed a covenant with. Covenant is deeper than a contract. It can't be broken. God formed a covenant with them in order to form this great nation. And so what I want to do in this series is I would like to, um, for the scriptures that are in this book, 
I will refer to the page number and try to tell you approximately where it's at on the page that I'm going to be reading to you um, and sharing with you. My encouragement is you open to that and you're underlining, you're highlighting, you're writing notes in this thing, and this thing's all going to be all marked up for you at the end with all the visions and wonderful revelations that God gives to you. So this is your book, so use it. It's just like, a, it's like a, a textbook that you don't have to return, and so you can write in it. But I'm also going to give you the chapter and verse for the scripture, uh, the Bible verse, um, so if you want to look it up in your Bible, you're welcome to do that. We'll also put it on the screen. Uh, some of the verses, because this isn't the entire Bible, are not in there. I'll tell you that, and then I'll be reading to you from, from my Bible as we go through this thing together. So if you're going to turn in the story to Genesis chapter 12, which is found on page 13. So if you want to turn there, we'll get to it in just a second. But let me tell you, there is a lot that happens. Last week, we left off after Genesis chapter 10. Maybe you didn't know that. We made it through 10 chapters of the book of Genesis and one message, powerful time together. But from Genesis chapter 10 to Genesis chapter 12, there's a ton that takes place. Um, Genesis chapter 11 is what happens in between those two if, you're, if, you, if you do numbers, like, right, you know. Um, and in Genesis 11 is just genealogies. There is between Genesis 10, which is Noah, Noah, flood Noah, and between Genesis 12, which is Abraham, the father of the nation, of Israel. There's about a thousand years of history that takes place between those two. And I got to thinking about that. What does that feel like, a thousand years? Because we just flippantly say, a thousand years. Well, think back to 1921. Think about all that's taken place just in our nation since 1921. All the conflicts, all the wars, all the, the industrial revolution, um, television, media, internet, everything that's taken place in the development, all that, that's in just 100 years. 1,000 years has transpired, has passed by in the course of just one chapter in the Bible. And so we don't know a lot about it, but there had to have been a whole lot of things that took place, relational things and development things and family things and conflicts and problems and trials and struggles and tragedies and different things that took place in that thousand years. And now a thousand years has passed by, and even though the Bible doesn't record much about it, Genesis chapter 12 picks up with the story of Abraham. So there's a thousand years there. And so when you look through Genesis chapter 11, you'll see genealogies. He begat, begat, begat. There's a lot of begatten that took place in a thousand years, okay? So there's a lot of children, a lot of, a lot of families that were developed and so forth. But that's basically just some information. And then we get to a place in Genesis chapter 12. I told you on page number 13, in your storybook, and I'm going to be, uh, I'll just read it to you, the first few verses uh, that are in there. Let's, let's read what it says. It says, the Lord had said to Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to a land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you'll be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Now I want you to flip over just two pages, which is to Genesis chapter 15, and toward the, the bottom of the page, about, I don't know, eight lines up, it's Genesis 15, verse number five. This is where God makes Abraham the father of this great nation, and God says, I'm gonna bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. And he says, he took him outside, this is God taking Abram outside, and said, look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. So we read this story and we realize, wow, God chose, intentionally and willfully chose, Abraham and Sarah Abraham to be the father of this great nation. Now you need to just trek with me for a few minutes because I, I propose to you that they were not the logical choice. I don't think they should have been chosen by God. If I was God, I would have like not chosen them. For one thing, Abraham's daddy was an idol worshiper. In fact, Abraham's father was not just a worshiper of idols. He peddled idols for other people to worship. It records in Joshua chapter 24. So he comes from this lineage of like evil stuff. But secondly, they were old, like like old. And I'm not, those of you that are elderly uh, or older, some of you are like, I'm not elderly. Well, okay. Um, um, but those of you that are older, listen, this is in no way a dig because it ends up being quite 
quite a blessing. See, elderly, Abraham and Sarah, they were old. And God chose to use Abraham and Sarah. Uh, This is an elderly couple who who had never had children. And God says, oh, you're the ones... I need you to understand this. Um, God chooses an infertile, elderly couple to populate a nation. Sounds like a great idea, doesn't it? Here's what I picture. This is not in the Bible, but you've got to truck with Troy for a minute because this is how my brain works. I'm thinking, come on in, come on in. God gathers up the angels. Huddle up, fellas, ladies, whatever. I don't know what they are, but anyway, huddle up, huddle up, right? And, and so, so here's the deal. You know they all blew it out there, right? And so they all sinned and sins in the world. And so here's the deal. Have I got a play? Have I got a plan? I know exactly what's going to happen. I'm going to redeem mankind. <laughs> I'm going to do it by starting a nation. And from the nation, my son is going to come out. It's going to be amazing. And Jesus, Jesus is going to redeem the whole world through his sacrifice. And the angel's are like, yeah, 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 yeah. This is just what I'm picturing. And I think the angels are going, Good. And, and then God's like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to need a father of this nation. And they, whoa, 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 hold on a second. God, have I got an idea for you? Because I saw this couple, they like to play tennis. They're a tennis playing couple, right? They enjoy playing tennis. They're athletic, they're nimble. And I heard them talking about how they want to have children. And so why don't we use this tennis playing couple down? I don't know if they had tennis back then. Just roll with me for a second. And, and, and why don't we use them? And God's like, well... I can see your train of thought, but I've got a better idea. I want to use an elderly, infertile couple to populate the nation. (laughs) It just doesn't make sense. But this is what we see throughout the entire Bible. Over and over and over and over again, God uses unlikely people to tell the story of his love. (laughs) I mean, Abraham was old, 75, 100 years old when he had his son, right? Isaac, Isaac was insecure. He wasn't very confident. Leah was ugly. I'm just gonna say it, right? She was like unattractive. Joseph was a slave, (laughs) He was in bondage and in captivity. Gideon, I don't know if you know the story of Gideon. We're going to get into all these characters. I'm so excited about this. Gideon, Gideon was afraid. Moses had a speech impediment. How could he be the voice of God when he couldn't even get a sentence out? Samson, arrogant, proud, but God chose to use him. Gideon, I told you, was fearful. Rahab, Rahab, Rahab. She was a prostitute. She was immoral, but God used her mightily. David had an affair. He was a murderer, and yet God chose to use him. Jonah, talk about disobedient, rebellion unto God. Uh, uh, Naomi was a widow. She didn't have any resources or any support, and yet God used her mightily. Mary was just a little poor teenage girl. John the Baptist was eccentric. I kind of think, you know, fabulous is what he was. He just wore the camel hair skins and the whole weird, he was just weird, right? Um, And yet God used a weird guy mightily, right? Um, uh, Peter, oh, he's my favorite character because he was impulsive. Peter just did it. And I appreciate that about Peter. He just, he just did it, and then he thought about it later on, right? And, but God still found a way to use him, and I'm grateful for that. Martha, Martha was a worrywart. What are we gonna do? What are we gonna do, right? She worried all the time. The Samaritan woman, well, the Samaritan woman had several failed marriages, and yet God used her mightily. Thomas, you know, he was a doubter. I don't think so. I don't know what you're talking about. I don't think so. Paul, Paul, who wrote most of the New Testament, was in very poor health. And yet God used him mightily. Timothy, kind of like his name sounds, he was very timid. And Paul kept encouraging him to be courageous and be bold and don't let anybody look down at you because you were young. Quit being so timid that God used him. The list just goes on and on and on. See, the people that God chooses to tell his story are not the people that you and I would choose. And I love that about God. Here's the question I had. Why? 
Why, why? Why does God use a long list of misfits to accomplish his purposes? Why does God use an elderly, infertile couple to populate a nation? Why? Because he can. Because he's God. Because his ways are higher than our ways. Because he knows more than we do. God chooses the weak and he chooses the least likely because then God gets all the glory. Because if he chooses the nimble, athletic, tennis-playing couple, right, well, then God might not get all the glory. But this way, God chooses the elderly, infertile couple that had never had any kids. I'm pretty sure God's going to get all the glory for that. Now, I'm not saying if you're a young, tennis-playing, hip couple that want to have kids that God can't use you, not in any way. But I'm saying we're all more like this than we are like this. We're all a bunch of misfits. So for everybody who doesn't feel qualified to be a part of the story that God is still writing, maybe you feel like for you that what you've done, it, it's, it was too sinful. Maybe you feel like for you that, that uh, it's too late. Are you kidding me? Is it too late for you in your life? Maybe you feel like you've done too many foolish things or you don't have the resources or you don't have the skill set or the talents in your life. Look at Abraham and Sarah and remember, God uses people like you and he uses people like me. It doesn't make sense on paper, but it gives God the opportunity to receive all the glory. And that is what the story is all about. Think about um, when God wanted to start a prison ministry, a national prison ministry, he chose a guy. How many of y'all remember Watergate with Nixon? He chose a guy who went down with President Nixon and ended up spending a lot of time in prison himself. And in that prison cell that he deserved to be in, God spoke to him. God came upon him. And Chuck Colson began one of the greatest prison ministry movements in the nation. And it established something that caused a revival within the prisons of this great nation of ours. When God wanted somebody to teach us about joy, who did he choose? He chose a quadriplegic, somebody who couldn't use her arms, couldn't use her legs. John, Johnny Erickson Tata was chosen by God, somebody who had every right to be depressed and downcast and discouraged and frustrated and bitter. But instead, she demonstrates joy, unspeakable and full of glory. In the midst of her pain, she still exudes the joy of the Lord. God chose her to be his joy demonstration in real time. Why? Because he can. He doesn't need the young couple who plays tennis. God is looking for somebody. He chooses the elderly, <laughs> infertile couple because he can. That's the kind of power of the God that we serve. And so as you study the story of Abraham and Sarah, you begin to wonder, what was it about them then? Why did God choose them? Well, there, there's a reason why. And the reason why God chose Abraham and therefore his wife Sarah is because of one word and that one word is the word faith. They had incredible, gigantic faith. They had faith. So let's take a look at the story. In Genesis 12, it, uh, God says uh, to Abram, I want you to leave your hometown. His hometown's name was Haran. Uh, Haran is on the border between Turkey and Syria, right smack in the middle of the Middle East. Um, and he says, I want you to leave your hometown, Sarah, or Haran, and I want you to go, well, I, I'm, I'm not going to tell you. I want you to go to a place that I haven't yet designated. It doesn't mean that God hadn't yet made up his mind. He's just, I'm not going to tell you. Sometimes God doesn't tell you things in your life, and you get angry, and you get frustrated, and you get discouraged. I'll take my toys and go home. God told a 75-year-old man Pack up your wife, your, your stuff, your herds, uh, leave your mansion, roll up a tent, 
And boys start walking. And he said yes. I think if you think about it, God's asking a lot. And here's what we read as we continue on in page 13 of looking at uh, what it says in the story. So Abram went as the Lord had told him. And Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. I just like the first three words. So Abram, so Abram went. No questions, no objections. He went. This elderly man takes his wife and they leave. They don't know where they're going. Now, I don't know about you, but I am a fan of the Hall of Fame. It doesn't matter for what it's for. I just appreciate that whoever's in a Hall of Fame deserves to be there, whether it be the Baseball Hall of Fame in Akron, Ohio, or whatever it is. If you're in the Hall of Fame, you deserve to be there. Now, here's, here's what I think about this, is in the Bible, there is a Hall of Fame also, and, and some of you know this, but it's found in the last few chapters, a few books of the Bible. One book is called, Pastor Trinity mentioned earlier, Hebrews. And in Hebrews chapter 11, it is commonly referred to as the Faith Hall of Fame. If, you, if your name makes it into the Faith Hall of Fame, it's, it's because you did something pretty profound. And so I'm going to read to you what, what it says in Hebrews chapter 11, verse number 8. By faith, Abraham when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. He just went, even though he had no idea where he was going. So I'm going to define for you today faith. I'm going to give you three different definitions. Definition number one, I'd write it down in the story, right there on the margin if I were you. Now, here's what I want to say. Faith is obeying God when you don't know where you're going. Faith is obeying God when you don't know where you're going. This, this book has a lot of great information in it. The Bible certainly does. But reading this book doesn't make me a Christ follower. Now, it's important that you read the book, but it doesn't make you a Christ follower. In order to be a product of this book, I gotta get up and I got to do what the book says because this book was not given to us for information. This book was given to us for application, to be doers of the word, not just hearers of the word. We can learn the details of the story, but if all we do is learn about God's story without creating healthy changes in our story, then all you're doing is wasting time. You're wasting the most valuable commodity that there is to any human being, and that is time. Don't waste God's time, and don't waste the gift of your time that he's given to you by just being somebody who collects information. Apply it. Do what it says. Abraham heard from God, and he responds. The Bible says he obeys. He gets off the couch, and he does something. And I know each week as we go through the story together, you and I aren't just going to read this and, and listen and go to the groups about this just so that we can get more information. It's not about learning. It's about doing. It's not just about information. It's about application. And so I want, to, want you to see another very, very powerful verse on page number 15 in the story. And it's, it's uh, Genesis chapter 15, verse number 6. So it's a little bit below where we were at before. And it says, Abram believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. Abram believed the Lord. Now, the circumstances were beyond his control. A lot of you, your circumstances are beyond your control. But Abraham believed that God was going to do what he said he was going to do. Romans chapter 4 tells us this. Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed and so became the father of many nations. Just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body, <laughs> come on, his body was as good as dead. He's 100 years old. He, he faced the fact, and since he was about 100, and, and that Sarah's womb, well, it was also dead because she's like 90. And yet he did not waver 
through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had the power to do what he had promised. So as we look at faith, the definition of faith through the lens of Abraham could be this way. Number two, are you ready? Faith is believing God against all hope. Leave it up there for a second. Faith is believing God against all hope. Now this brings up a very important question. Are you ready that God wants to ask you this question? It's really simple. Do I believe God? Do I believe God? You don't get the job. Do I believe God? You don't get into the school you wanted to get into. Do you believe God? Do you believe that God can still work through all things? Pastor Trinity talked about generosity a few minutes ago. I don't know about you, but that's kind of a common thread. We can all struggle with generosity from time to time, can't we? Sure we can. Generosity is not easy for most people. Do we believe what God says when he says it is more blessed to give than it is to receive? Do you believe that by giving you are storing up for yourselves treasures in heaven. What do we mean treasures in heaven? Let me just go sidebar here, not in my notes, so you're following along back there, just kind of roll with it for a second. What do we mean treasures in heaven? You know, like if you give on earth, everybody's going to get a mansion in heaven, but if you give a lot on earth, then we know you're going to be able to store for yourselves a hot tub in your mansion in heaven. It's going to be amazing, guys. I'm telling you, it's going to be great. That's not what he's talking about. It has nothing to do with that. What are the treasures you're going to, you never, you've, you proverbially, you've heard, you don't see a U-Haul being pulled behind a hearse, right? You can't take anything with you. So what are we storing up treasures in heaven for? Well, it's, it's in the form of jewels in your crown. You're going to be given a crown one day. It's in the Bible. You're going to be given a crown one day, Joshua. A crown is going to be given to you so that you can walk around and go, well, you've got a nice crown, but have you, have you seen my crown? Check it out. It has nothing to do with that. The Bible says that there's going to be about 30 minutes of silence in heaven. Ah, there's a lot of Bible scholars, and I read a lot of, lot of material that have a lot of different vantage points on what that 30 minutes of silence is all about. I propose what I happen to believe one of the scholars says. I wonder if maybe the 30 minutes of silence isn't going to be the unveiling of Jesus, and we're all, including the angels, going to be just totally silent in the presence of the king. And it's at that point that the jewels that we have in our crown, we will then be able to lift off our head and bow before the king of glory and present to him an offering. The jewels in that crown represent sacrifice, uh, represent mockery, represent people's negative opinions because we're choosing to follow Christ in the midst of what they think is ridiculousness. The jewels in the crown means I'm going to keep my hand to the plow, catch the wind of the spirit, stay grafted to the vine. The Jew, I, David said, I will not give to the Lord an offering that costs me nothing. I don't know what you want to do, but when I get to heaven, I desperately want my crown to be so full of jewels that I can't even hold my head up straight because my Jesus is so worthy. He's so worthy. And I want my life my life, this fleeting moment, this vapor, here today and gone tomorrow. If you don't believe that, then talk to my friends, the Follow family, that I'll be going to the funeral this afternoon for their, their boy in his early 20s. Or talk to the Acosta family. I've had to say goodbye to three of theirs. Here today, gone tomorrow, not a promise. Will you have jewels in your crown to present to the king of glory? How do I get those? Faithfulness. Generosity. Ah, if you tell everybody what you've done, you already got your reward on earth. There ain't going to be no jewels in your crown. It's... Do you believe God when your marriage is on the rocks? When your kids rebel? 
When you lose your job, when you lose your home, when the doctor says you've got cancer, when you get the dreaded phone call in the middle of the night, get to the hospital now. Do we believe that God is working on our behalf when the world around us seems to be crumbling? Let me remind you what faith is not. Faith is not believing that God will do whatever I want him to do. That is not biblical faith. Biblical faith is believing that God will do what he said he would do and that God can do whatever he wants to do because he's God. So if you read a little bit more in the story, you get to chapter 16 and you realize that God is running a little slow. Has God ever run a little slow in your life before? You ever wanted to help God along just a little bit because God, I know ultimately you're gonna come through anyway, so let me just kind of help you along. That's the situation here. Sarah's getting kind of frustrated. She's getting older and older and older, so she's like, well, God promised I believe he's going to come through, but let me just kind of help him out a little bit. (laughs) Some of us just like, that's, I know, you know, guilty as charged. Yeah, well, get ready. So here's Sarah's plan. First two verses of chapter 16 of Genesis says, Now Sarah, Abram's wife, had borne to him no children, but she had an Egyptian slave named Hagar. So so she said to Abram, The Lord has kept me from having children. Go and sleep with my slave. What could go wrong, right? Perhaps I can build a family through her. And it says, Abram said, hokey dokey, right? Are you you nuts? And yet it happened. Culture was a little different back then. So Abraham sleeps with his wife's servant. Her name was Hagar, and she gets pregnant. And surprise, Sarah's upset. Sarah's ticked off now. She's jealous. She's bitter toward Hagar because you slept with my, with my boo, right? You slept, you slept with my husband. Well, you told her to, I just, are you, it's nuts. It's all nuts. And out of this, I got an idea. Let me help God along a little bit. Let's move the timetable up just a little bit. All hell breaks loose. Why? Because Abraham and Sarah are committed to the what, to the destination, but they're not committed to the how. How are we going to get there? You know, I got to thinking about this, and I thought, I'm an author. I like to write, write books, and um, I, 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 if I was to put titles to the book of your life or of my life, and I chose the title based upon your reaction to God's direction, here's a few possible titles. The first one is this one, No Way. You all know people that just like, no way. Church, no. God, no. Jesus, no. Uh, Holy Spirit, no. Just no way. By the way, let me introduce you to something called the law of receptivity. Jesus is the one who introduced this to us. If you've got some, no, put that back up for me, pretty please. If there are some no wayers in your life, just wipe the dust and find someone who's receptive because we spend more of our life working on no wayers then we're working on people that are receptive all around us. Don't you think God has the power to penetrate and to work on them? Let God take care of them. And you go in the law of receptivity. Jesus said that. If they won't receive you, just wipe the dust off and go to the next person. So the no-wayers, God will get through to them. And one day, one day they'll become become in the next level. What's another title, though? might be the halfway. There's a good title for the book. Halfway. These are the people that are part-time faith. Well, I believe in Jesus. Christ is the one, one true God. I believe in this. I believe, except, you know, there's some exception clauses. I, um, I believe that you're supposed to follow the precepts of God's word. I believe that you're supposed to remain pure. Unless, of course, we both agree as, as uh, consenting adults that, you know, we're, we're probably going to get married one day, so uh, who's it going to hurt if we just choose to sleep together outside of the bounds of, of marriage uh, and, and wedlock? You're a halfwayer. There's no beating around the bush. You're not sold out. And you're saying, how dare you judge me? 
How dare you choose not to follow this book? God's not looking for perfection. He's looking for honesty, transparency. It's a halfwayer. Here's the one that really gets to me, and this is the, it's the my way. There's a good title, my way. This is where Abraham and Sarah are at. They're, they're committed to the what? I'm committed to building this new nation, to being the father that I'll do it, God. You're going to give me a son, and I'm going to, the sand and the seashore and, the, and the, the stars in the sky, and oh, yeah, I'm committed to the destination. I'm just not committed to the how you want to do it. Huh. And so what happens? Well, let me just tell you the story. This is, this is fun to talk about. Abraham, Abraham sleeps with Hagar. Hagar uh, gets pregnant. Sarah gets ticked off. Abraham says, out you go. She gets shipped off into the, into the desert, into the wilderness, where she gives birth to a son by the name of Ishmael. Ishmael becomes uh, the father of of the Arab nation, of the Muslim nation. Ishmael is born out of sin, and out of sin comes the Arab nation. Now you follow with me, trek with me. Abraham and Sarah have to wait on God. Abraham was 75 years old when he impregnated Hagar, and he wasn't until he was 100 years old that he had his son Isaac. So it was 24, 25 years later. They waited a quarter of a century before Isaac comes along. Don't you talk to me about it. I've been waiting like three weeks. Are you kidding me, God? Where are you? If you ever want to have a conversation one-on-one about what it means to wait for something, man, I'll talk to you. So Isaac is born. Isaac becomes the father of the Jewish nation, the Christian nation. And there is conflict. There is conflict from the beginning between Isaac and Ishmael. And you've been watching the news and hearing what's going on in Afghanistan, and that would have never taken place had Abraham and Sarah not gotten ahead of God and said, my way. We're going to continue to have conflict in, in um, Iran and Iraq and Syria with the nation of Israel. Uh, all of this is going to continue to take place. Put that third title up for me, please, again, Marissa. Thank you so much. My way. Um, Abraham and Sarah were so old, they might not have even really noticed the conflict between their boys, although they did, but they may not have noticed you might not even notice in your life, how selfish do you have to be? Man, I'm, I'm preaching now. How selfish do we have to be to be like, I don't care. Do what I want to do, my way. Because who pays for it? Your children and your grandchildren and your great-grandchildren? And 4,000 years later, we're still fighting. We're still fighting because of a decision that wasn't against God, He was helping God. You can't be a my wayer. The title of your book should be Your Way. Your Way. Your Way. Complete surrender. It's the, here's the pen, God. You write the story. You write the story. I surrender to you. And in Genesis chapter 22, we see the story of God calling Abraham. This next step is God calling Abraham to sacrifice his son, to to sacrifice his son. Page number 19, trek with me, I know I'm going to go, anybody give me about five more minutes? Raise your hand if you give me five more minutes. Y'all heard me say this before, haven't you? Leave them up, I want to see it again. This one to get his job, 5, 10, 15, 20, 25, 30, 35, I got it, I got it, I got it, okay. So I'm going to take about five, you know what I'm talking about, five more minutes here because it's it says on page number 19, about, about halfway down, this is the story of God calling Abraham to sacrifice his son in Genesis chapter 22. Sometime later, God tested Abraham and he said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, in case you didn't know that, I'm talking about Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you. 
That seems contrary to the plan of God, does it not? It seems like he shouldn't do this. Why would God do this? Well, let's continue reading. Verses three through five, which is... um, uh, oh, excuse me, they didn't put verses three through five in here, so I'm gonna go to my Bible, and Genesis chapter 22, verses three, four, and five says, early the next morning, Abraham got up and saddled his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. <laughs> and when he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. And he said to his servant, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Uh, We, the word we is in there. Abraham knew that God could be trusted. So the final definition I want to give you of faith today is this. Faith is trusting God even when the story doesn't make sense. I know some of you are writing that down. So I'm going to wait a second. Faith is trusting God even when the story doesn't make sense. Some of you are there right now. This just doesn't make sense. I didn't do anything wrong. Why am I experiencing such discouragement or frustration or abandonment? This doesn't make sense. All I want to do is fulfill my call. But there's so many hindrances and obstacles and strongholds that it doesn't make sense, God. It, It doesn't make sense. All I want is to love my kids, but they're making it impossible. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. You ever, you ever read a novel and you come to the part in the novel and you're like, are you kidding me? No! And you're like, I just want to close the novel and throw it on the bedside table. I don't want to continue reading anymore. But because you are familiar with the author, you pick the book back up again and you keep on reading. Because you know that's not the end. The, the story is not over yet. So that's what we do. We keep on reading. And this is found in pages 19 and 20, but I'm gonna read it to you off the screen for time's sake. Genesis 22, verse number six. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac, and he himself carried the the fire and the knife. And as the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his daddy, he's like, "Um, hey, um, uh, the fire and the wood are here, but um, where's the lamb for the sacrifice for the burnt offering? And Abraham says, well, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my boy, my son. And the two of them went on together. And when they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there. And he built, he erected this altar, kind of a rock kind of structure, big enough to be able to put a sacrifice on. And he says he laid out the wood on the altar, right? And, 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 and he says he, he bound, <laughs> boy, come here. <laughs> put your hands behind you. Sure, pops, right? Let me just tie you up and put your round around me. Oh, right on, Dad, right? Daddy-o, Papa Rinsky, what's happening here? This boy, if I was him, I'd have hopped the thunder out of there, right? <laughs> but then Daddy picks up this eight-year-old boy, however old he is, and lays him on top of the wood. The boy is not unfamiliar with this. He's been with his dad when he's made sacrifices before. Why would he not? Here's what I do. I've all been with eight-year-old squirrely munchkins before, right? You lay him on the wood, that boy's going to look, that's downhill. Roll. He's going to keep on rolling right down the hill just to get away. But he stayed there. It took faith for Isaac to stay there, just like it took faith for Abraham to raise the knife. And so he took the knife. He reached out his hand, took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord, check this out, called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham. Here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy. He said, do not do anything to him. Check this out. Check out the language in the Bible. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me. Go back one more time. It's a powerful time for me. Me, your son, your only son. And Abraham looked up. And there in the thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. That blows my mind away. It's like I'm sacrificing my son and I'm, all this, you know, this precious moment of God has called me to do this. And it had to have been annoying hearing, Meh, right, from this ram that was caught in the thicket all along. No, it wasn't there. God put it there. Abraham raises up the knife. The angel of the Lord, which the Bible says the angel of the Lord. Let me tell you another perspective on this that many scholars believe and I happen to believe too. It says, you have not withheld from me. An angel has no business ascribing to himself the, the credits of do God. This is Jesus, possibly the Holy Spirit, but this is Jesus, in my opinion. 
You have not withheld from me your only son. He provides a sacrifice for him, and it goes on to say that he, he made the sacrifice. The angel of the Lord is Jesus. So let's conclude. Abraham's son, Isaac, grows up, meets a foxy girl named Rebecca. 20 years later, they have twin boys who don't get along. One's a little more artsy and one's a little more athletic, right? And the artsy one decides he's gonna steal the birthright from the older twin boy who came out a couple minutes earlier, right? And he plots and he steals it from, so Jacob gets the birthright. I mean, this all, you read this this week. And so Jacob has 12 sons and those 12 sons become the 12 tribes of Israel. The nation is being built now, but here's what we need to understand. There is a literary term that you might remember from like fifth grade. It's this term, it's foreshadowing. You remember that, right? Foreshadowing, it's, it's the author gives a hint of what's gonna come later. You see foreshadowing in every movie you watch, every book you read? You see foreshadowing in the word of God all the way through it. You see, when Abraham took his son Isaac up to Mount Moriah, that was the very same region that something else would happen thousands of years later. See, God tested Abraham. He passed the test. God provided a sacrifice. But later on, in the same, very same region, God would send his one and only son, Jesus, not as a test, but as the ultimate sacrifice to pay the ransom for your soul and for my soul. Puzzles. Nothing's more frustrating than putting all the labor and the work into putting a puzzle together and to be missing one piece. Some people who never kneel to pray will surely kneel to look all over the place for that one piece because nothing's more frustrating than having something unfinished when you put all the work into it. I wonder if we couldn't take this very same concept and illustration. Is it possible that your, that your story is the missing piece to the story that God wants to tell? Father, thank you for your word. It's not going to return void. Thank you for your message. Heal us and strengthen us. Deliver us. Empower us and teach us to follow you, your precepts, and your word in Jesus' name.